0: Welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I am EW senior writer Darren Franich, and we're we're here, Jeff, in the rain. You've just told me a joke, and I'm laughing at you, and who knows what else I'm doing to you right now. It's
1: EW's Jeff Jensen. Why won't you walk across my flashlight bridge? (laughs) Sorry, we're talking about The Killing Joke, in we're, case that joke didn't make any sense at any wedding.
0: Jeff, much like The Killing Joke, it didn't make much sense, but yep. that's okay, because we're <laughs> going to try and talk about it. Batman, The Killing Joke, the classic, question mark, story by Alan Moore and Brian Bolland. That graphic novel has been adapted into a somewhat controversial cartoon film that actually played in theaters and grossed a surprising amount yeah. of money. It's now on Blu-ray and on demand. And Three iTunes. and a half
1: million dollars in one night, or was it two Yes.
0: I believe it was in Two Nights. It, it grossed a little bit more than I think they were expecting. Maybe just evidence that if you put Batman in the title of something, then people will definitely show up for it more than they've shown up for most of the sequels this summer. So we are going to talk all about that later on. We will try to have some time for a Mr. Robot check-in. Jeff, I had not ever read The Killing Joke all the way through before yesterday.
1: It's not a long book, so why?
0: Well, as a youngster, when I was collecting Wizard Magazine, I felt as if I had like kind of experienced the entirety of The Killing Joke just in sort of write-ups about it. You know, The Killing Joke is famous for a few big reasons. The Joker shoots Batgirl and paralyzes her, which then leads to her becoming Oracle, who is actually a character who I read a lot about and saw in the cartoon growing up. That was a big part of my Batman experience as a kid. It's also just kind of famous for being one of the Alan Moore dark weird uh, stories of the 80s. Uh, Alan Moore himself has somewhat uh, disowned The Killing Joke or at least has said that he's not super happy with it, which adds another interesting link in the chain to how we got to here. But yesterday, I finally read it through all the way, and then I watched the animated film of The Killing Joke. Jeff, there's been some controversy over this film, it's fair to say. And
1: uh, not just because that it's extremely faithful to the controversial events of the book. Yeah, and those
0: events include the aforementioned shooting and paralyzation of beloved figure, especially from the kind of earlier lighthearted Batman era, Batgirl which that follows a lot of other awful things that happened to her and happened to Commissioner Gordon. The film follows all of that stuff and adds in some interesting new flourishes, but also includes a sort of prologue that was apparently intended to provide more of uh, a deeper understanding of the Batgirl character. And hoo boy, Jeff, uh, I'm not sure they quite hit that particular bullseye. The interesting thing about this movie is it is one of these examples of how do we take a quote-unquote sacred text and to a certain extent, I think, try to fix it. And I do think they tried to fix it, but actually just made it worse because the the prologue is very Batgirl-focused and sort of told from her perspective. Right,
1: They they tried to fix it without... Changing a thing about the original text, but instead creating this 30 minutes that now begins the story, this original 30 minutes that hopefully adds some kind of context to the story and makes it more Batgirl-oriented.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that 30 minutes. I realized very quickly that what I was watching, Jeff, was not so much an adaptation of The Killing Joke as a kind of awkward continuation-slash- prequel to the animated series batman The animated series which i grew up watching which was produced by uh, bruce Timm, whose name is on this movie as a producer i believe the look of it feels very akin to batman the animated series it is r-rated which is why batgirl has sex with batman there's there's a lot going on in that prologue that i didn't quite understand (laughs) why why it had to happen it felt like their idea for making her more of a character was perhaps well-intentioned, but it did also seem to make her a little bit less of a character, I think. I'm really struggling to understand why they just added in this strange prologue, mm-hmm. and then, and then, as you said, just let the rest of Killing Joke play out completely as
1: is. Right. Well, I mean, I, I didn't like the movie. I struggled it's, to actually stay awake it's during it. I awful. fell asleep twice <laughs> trying to watch it. Yeah, it's not very good. It is weird to see them try to tell this edgy R-rated story and adapt rather faithfully the killing joke And to add to it with this new content that is also thematically on point and equally R-rated as the book. And to do it in the style of the sort of like 90s and uh, DC Warner Brothers animation, which uh, just kind of locates it more in like an all-ages kind of sphere. So to see, and also with the same voices too, like Kevin Conroy doing Batman, Mark Hamill doing the Joker. So to see this R-rated story being brought to life with this kind of language is, I mean, you, you could say oh, that's rather subversive, but it's also really kind of weird. And where the weirdness kind of began for me, so if we could just summarize a little bit of the plot for people if you haven't seen this. So this is kind of what they do with the movie. It begins three years apparently after Batgirl has become Batgirl and Barbara Gordon is, is Batgirl and she's doing stuff with Batman and she's uh, fighting crime and all of that but she's still kind of really rather early on she's kind of idealistic she's kind of innocent she's kind of happy-go-lucky she's not as cynical and hard-bitten as batman and they kind of fall into this story that involves a, a young mobster who's rather sadistic and nihilistic and he's trying to take over his uncle's operation and he ends up running a foul with Batgirl and Batman, but he ends up developing this sort of obsessive, psychosexual interest in Batgirl, and Batman is incredibly concerned about this fatal attraction, if you will. Like, of course, Batgirl doesn't want anything to do with this guy, but she becomes obsessed with bringing him down, and he just sees a recipe for disaster happening here, where there is a villain now. She has an arch-villain, if you will, who is obsessed with her to a deranged degree. And what is she going to do in response to neutralizing this villain? And I'm saying this very deliberately because this relationship ends up being mirrored in the Batman Joker relationship like later on, right? So this whole kind of point of the first half of the story then is, bringing Batgirl to a place of what is she going to do to bring this guy to justice and stopping him and how far is she willing to go and what spiritually is she going to lose uh, within herself and Batman just doesn't want her to like get involved this at all so he keeps on trying to kick her off the case which ends up just pissing off Batgirl. And in the midst of this, during one argument, they just get so pissy with each other, they start hitting each other and hitting each other, which of course leads to sex. Yes. Like, how
0: did that happen? They do the Mr. and Mrs. Smith
1: thing, which,
0: you know, I I will say, it worked very well in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. uh, But not (laughs)
1: here. And and not here. And the reason why it doesn't work here, there's a way in which that could work if they actually established that this was some kind of alt-Batman universe that has no resemblance and, and a pocket universe that does not take place within the Batman animated universe, right? But because of the look of the animation, because the look of the voices, because they don't tell you any different, you're led to believe that this is the Batgirl-Batman relationship that you maybe have seen in other Batman right. movies. Which, so when all of a sudden in those movies, as in the comics, the relationship is paternal, like you know, Batman is a father figure to Batgirl. So yeah. she's very much a kind of sibling figure to, I mean,
0: like to, to to one Robin or other, whether it's sort of to the Nightwing Robin or, you know, it, it is meant to be this, this is a Bat family and Batman is the father. If he has sexual tension, it's with cool uh, other person, Catwoman, but that doesn't factor into like his, his partners or anything like that. That's yeah. right.
1: And, and before this sex scene happens between them, I mean, the storytelling is taking pains to kind of... Uh, portray Batgirl as struggling in her romantic life, struggling in her personal life.
0: I did like her her gay best friend.
1: That was a nice addition. He keeps on harassing her (laughs) into kind of like, why don't you hit on the other guys that are hanging out in the library? So she's in college then, is
0: that what we're meant to understand? Or does she work in the library? Or she's a librarian? I I don't know, because, okay, so so your point exactly, Jeff, I was sort of okay with it because initially I thought, oh, this is, this is a very nerdy thing to say, but this is the show for it, this is some other universe where Batgirl and Batman are closer in age, perhaps. But then later on they established, no, Commissioner Gordon remembers when Batman's first case happened and she remembers that as happening during her childhood, so there's just a lot of strange, when she's talking to her gay best friend. she refers to Batman as her yoga teacher. There's just, the, the they don't seem to be running away from the paternal stuff, which makes it feel even so, stranger. Yeah, so when it happens, I mean,
1: they, the, the, the beginning of the film completely plays to the relationship that you're familiar with, that they've established, with these, like, R-rated flourishes, like, from an unusually sexually oriented bad guy for these kinds of movies to some violence. you know, people get shot and there's blood spurt out the head. A lot of headshots, like that. that's for sure. So then all of a sudden, when the sex thing happens, it's like, what? <laughs> so it's it's weird and it's unnecessary, I think, given the themes of the movie, I think since you've been kind enough to map out
0: the way in which the Batgirl, evil, kind of rapey mobster guy, the way that dynamic relates to the Joker Batman, I think that one of the themes in the Killing Joke graphic novel that it's much easier to kind of lose track of now because we've had sort of 30 years of dark, weird, you know, psychologically quote-unquote realistic Batman is there is this idea in the Killing Joke that this is different. Like, things used to be more fun, but the Joker is doing something very different now, and he is trying to push through into some new, darker form of Joker crime, which seems to relate more generally to what I think Alan Moore's work was very focused on at that time, which was this idea of, like, doing things in a darker and more psychologically realistic way. And there's that line that Batman has to Batgirl, which is, like, you haven't really been pushed to the brink yet, you know, for you this is still fun, for you this is still sort of, you know, wacky bat family adventures, and you, I just don't you want haven't you... haven't
1: confronted the abyss yet yes, or something yes, like that. Yes, yes, yes,
0: exactly, yeah. It's interesting to try and structure it that way. The problem, of course, is that after the first 20 minutes of this movie, you think, oh, this is interesting, they have made this movie into a journey for Batgirl. And this movie will actually be almost kind of like, if you imagine doing like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version of the graphic novel The Killing Joke, where it's like, let's not focus on the Batman-Joker dynamic. Let's pretend that Batgirl was the main character. That's sort of interesting. I mean, the the problem there, of course, then, is the idea of, oh, well, like things only really get serious once you, only female character in this, gets paralyzed. But there's something interesting there. The issue is that nothing in the movie really makes really coheres to that. There idea. are two things
1: that could have easily fixed this movie and and only made it uh, being better in every way. is, uh, yeah. is Number one. <laughs> right. If they had not done the two things I'm about to say, then the only thing problematic about the movie would be a a weird structure and b everything that's potentially wrong these days with the killing joke. But one is, and there are two things that they could easily have just written differently, I think. The sex scene is completely unnecessary. and, And the whole like fixation with her dating life, which could have been easily turned into something else. Because of those two scenes, I think that everyone who watches this movie just sees now Batgirl as just being presented in very usual, cliche, traditional ways of being kind of like the a, a usual female archetype that's only interested in boys and is completely defined by a relationship to Batman and, and views them as some kind of romantic interest. And if those things had been removed, I think that would have been more evident in retrospect. The only thing that would have been really kind of in front of us is the story of Batman trying to prevent Batgirl from becoming like him and becoming like losing his soul, and being at risk for possibly doing the things that he does in the second half of this uh, of, of this movie, which is like being pushed to the edge to the possibility of killing the Joker, right? I she, so I, I think that if if those romantic things weren't in the first half of the movie. I think it would still be a bad movie. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But, like, I think that the themes that are most interesting to think about from a Batman fan, and maybe just in general, would have been more evident.
0: I mean, we've talked about this, like, a little bit on this show, Jeff. Like, Killing Joke is, I believe, closing in on 30 years old now. Uh, Possibly even older, but it is so weird for me in this year that also had you know kind of batman v superman which was sort of taking a lot of frank miller ideas of the self-seriousness of of batman and even kind of removing any of the fun stuff that frank miller got interested in and just making it really self-serious and you know faux philosophical it is weird to see that trickle all the way down to this because again i mean This movie, while an adaptation of Alan Moore's work, is also very much in the spirit of the greater animated universe that DC has been creating over the last 25 years. And, you know, in my memory, Batman the Animated Series, which... I didn't watch that much of when it was first on, you know, that was even a little bit more influenced by like the 1930s Batman and, you know, the the Jet Age Batman and a little bit of Tim Burton, but then mixed backwards into the Gotham where Zeppelins were, were sort of floating overhead. And it's weird to see that even that world now has kind of gone into the darker, bleaker stuff. Alan Moore has spent a lot of his time lately giving interviews about how he feels like superhero comics have gone wrong. But with Killing Joke specifically, he himself kind of says like, he doesn't look back on it that happily. He feels like it's Kind of nasty. He loves the Brian Bolland artwork, uh, which is awesome. And and again, I think another failing of the movie is it doesn't really go for that look at all, or or you know, or any look really. But it it just it's very bland compared to I think what Bolland was doing and the sort of surrealism and the detail that he brought to it. I found myself watching this movie and being like, it would have been really interesting if someone had like said, we're going to do The Killing Joke, but we're going to kind of do almost kind of like what Mary Heron did with American Psycho, where it's like, I know that this is a problematic text and I'm going to like adapt this with that in mind, you know? like Like, how can I tell this story but try to, you know, try to honestly adapt it and try to do something interesting with it and that doesn't seem to have really been on the on the table that much because um, the back hour of once you get past that prologue which as you've already established fails on a lot of merits then it is just like a weird you know karaoke rendition of the killing joke and I'm not sure that really adds very much to, <laughs> yeah, you,
1: you <laughs> to wish- the history of uh,
0: of Batman
1: <laughs> I definitely wish that they had allowed themselves the freedom to be a little bit more irreverent with the text with a very irreverent text yes. you know which is to 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 respond to it as opposed to just faithfully adapt it because in faithfully adapting it it just feels like um a a sensationalistic cheap like cash grab you know at a time in which in our superhero glut um we're seeing a market for edgier visions right from like deadpool to like this r-rated batman versus superman like you know (laughs) dvd you know it just seems that like someone it, it it just and with, without much thought about some of the content in there that just like politically, socially these days, um, that aren't definitely we push back on now, and we're even kind of queasy back then. That said, I do want to make a small argument for the value of the Killing Joke at that time in comic book history. The graphic novel, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or I say graphic I will, novella. I will. I will, I will, <laughs> I will allow that. Yeah. <laughs> because. It was part of that period of time of like Dark Knight, Watchmen, and other things in which we were getting a very different take on superheroes. And specifically with this one, um, you know, you got the sense that Alan Moore was using this story to offer a little bit of critique of superhero comics, but specifically Batman, and this whole idea that is there really much of a difference between Batman and the Joker? Um, And not just like the one bad day thing, but until the point in the story where Batman basically, you know, punches out the Joker and makes a declaration that while he may be a very problematic agent of the law, the law is something worth believing in, you know? But before that point, like Joker is scoring some really fascinating points about what an effed up idea that Batman is and that are all true regardless of how this all shakes out. The idea that, that, that the whole idea of being Batman is a, re, is a denial of reality and a really um, uh, a, a distortion of reality uh, for, for Bruce Wayne as much as Joker's like distortion well, of reality.
0: Don't you think too, and again, like I'm, I'm glad we're shifting into the, the graphic novella because I could go the rest of my life never talking about the movie ever again. Like, <laughs> you know, as much as I admire the idea of, of looking at this material and saying we need more Batgirl, and as much as I, I do think there is a genius version of that that really does focus in on that character. Um, this is a Joker story. This is
1: a Joker story. This
0: is not even really a Batman right. story, frankly. And, and- But
1: it is a story about their relationship which was really interesting for the time because one of the things i really love about the way that the story begins is it and this was unusual and it definitely spoke to the history of comics and it was one of alan moore's knowing way of speaking to the history of comics and then kind of thinking about then what are some of the accumulated meanings then that come from that, that 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 we have because of the history of comics because no one had told a story like this before that was almost very self-aware about batman's history with the joker so the story begins with batman for seemingly no reason coming to visit arkham asylum to um, have a conversation with the joker and this is actually something that they do very differently in the movie has a different motivation i think for seeking out the joker
0: there is um, there is no explicit motivation at the start of Killing Joe, right? It, it, which it which
1: is, made it more interesting.
0: Yeah. So like it is it, it is almost as if like if you imagine like in all of their previous adventures, the hundreds or maybe even thousands that they had had up until this point, it is as if like this is one of the this is like the moment where suddenly between those adventures, Batman suddenly thinks like I should go visit him, or has <laughs> an
1: epiphany. You get the sense of like, in as much as this guy is be, is obsessed with destroying me. I've become obsessed with him. And so now he goes to Arkham Asylum and he sits down and he basically meets with the Joker. And the whole catalyst for this story happening is he basically says to them, listen, I've been thinking a lot lately about our relationship and we're in a self-destructive cycle. And one of these days, one of us is going to kill the other one. And I want to know, is there any way we can avoid that outcome? And there was something really fascinating and provocative about Batman taking the initiative to have this conversation with him on his own, as if there was just this thing that was kind of like bugging him all of a sudden. Yeah. It seems like Alan Moore is trying to wrestle with the idea of like, is the Joker really crazy? Or if he's not crazy, then how do we explain his psychosis? Mm-hmm. Um, which I know is by definition crazy. Right. But just, So if, if he's not crazy, then, then how do we explain his worldview. And and I think the rather provocative thing that he comes up with is that he yes, either he is crazy, or in in as much as that he too has adopted a way of looking at life that then in turn like he sticks to with massive integrity. He's he's similar to Batman
0: yeah and, and even and, and you know again like because this is Alan Moore in the 80s there's one aspect of it I, I was looking it up there's this great line where Joker is kind of on his final rant and he's saying like you know essentially the world is crazy do you know how many times we, we've come close to World War Three over a flock of geese on a computer screen like there's always like with Alan Moore's work at that time there is that aspect of the sort of looming nature of the Cold War and you know this this is all just kind of wrapped into this idea of the Joker basically saying is he crazy is there his reaction to a world that he considers crazy these are all really interesting ideas that you know what's great about the graphic novel I think is it very much at its best lassos onto that dynamic between the two of them and, and essentially and you know but by, by the process of making the Joker much worse than ever also seems to humanize him in a way that right. most people haven't even really tried before and that,
1: and that was really provocative for 1988 or 87 or whenever this was uh, done or published I think that they did it and then it sat in a in a drawer for a while as as DC tried to figure out what to do with it, um, but in that stretch of comics, this again represented something new—a different way to like present characters, think about characters, have them res- resonate with grander themes, darker themes, more psychological themes—and it was very valuable then to both the medium at the time and other artists in terms of showing people like what what you can wrestle with. Definitely, like, was a sophistic a challenge and and sophisticated challenge to the audience um, that was reading this stuff and challenging a little bit of their like you know their their taste and their ideas about this material and get the, getting them to actively kind of think and be critical about the material, and 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 uh, so it was important at the time, you know. Yeah. Now since then, like you know, there's we got a lot of stories like that, and we've gotten a lot of more cynical, horrible versions of that kind of story and. And, but that's another which are
0: much less thoughtful I mean I, I guess like you know the killing joke however problematic some aspects of it are in the modern age it, it, it is really interesting and like beautifully illustrated and you know I, I do think it is trying to get at some really interesting not just not just provocative for the sake of being provocative points and that is why you know it is weird to see it sort of transmogrified into this day and age we've had so much entertainment like this where essentially I mean you know it's funny to think that that like this came out only about 30 years after the kind of Dick Sprang Bat Family you know not too much violence just Batman constantly trying to not marry Batwoman style of storytelling so we are now about as close to The Killing Joke as The Killing Joke was to that and that's why I I mean I, I think that the reaction to the Killing Joke movie is a lot of people just kind of saying like, "This is we've had this for a long time." That's and, true. And just seeing it kind of in, in, in an unreconstructed, unconsidered form is very strange. So then,
1: let's talk about the, you know. So now that we've kind of made this defense of Killing Joke, the book, let's talk about the thing that made it controversial and queasy back then, and even more so now, which is what the Joker does to Barbara Gordon. Yeah. So are we defending that choice of that uh, in, in in the book, or is it real? you know was it really that prob- problematic then how was it problematic and why is it I even mean, more problematic listen, now listen it's
0: super problematic like here's a character with a long history she is in one page of this book and then she gets uh, shot in the spine and paralyzed
1: the Joker and the implication is that also some kind of yes, sexual there assault is, takes there is, place. I,
0: I mean, whether it is like a visual assault or an actual assault, that definitely takes place. It's all just happening because the Joker, one man, is trying. It's 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 all her being a proxy for her relationships to the other men in the book. That's all really, uh, you know. She is, that used is
1: specifically as a device in the story I was kind to of remembering further Jeff, the aims of everyone else. Do
0: you remember, because we were talking, I remember when the last edition of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's century came out i was looking back at that and i was thinking like was alan moore is has he been apologizing for killing joke for a while because because the great thing i loved about century was the idea that by the end all the male heroic archetypes of both the victorian age and the modern age have kind of faded away and all that's left is the women and i i, I had that in my head reading this where i was kind of like I'm sure if you don't know who Alan Moore is and you don't know what kind of work he would wind up doing, you'd read this and think, like, this is another, like, douchebag male writer, you know, putting a female character, you know, essentially in this book's version of a refrigerator by way of making things crazier for the guys. And, like, you know, to me, Alan Moore, given the work he's done recently, it's fair to say that, like, that's not what he was, like, doing. Like, but but even so, again, he himself doesn't really like what he did to Batgirl. So I, I feel like, You know there's a way of reading this where you say like you know maybe that stuff didn't need to happen (laughs) but that being said people forget oracle was a great character after this and the the fact that having been paralyzed they sort of absorbed that into the mainstream bat continuity they made her one of the few paralyzed superheroes in in ever ever in history and she was also the first kind of like like techno thriller superhero like I, i don't know the 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 fact that DC did a lot of interesting work after this maybe not so good thing, this definitely not so good thing, that that to me is interesting, and that maybe gets overlooked sometimes when we talk about the graphic novel. But how how do you feel? Does it does it does it definitely not pass the like, like I mean, it is unpleasant. Let's let's definitely it's a, establish it's unpleasant. that.
1: I, look, I think that in the context of the story, what the Joker is trying to accomplish is that he wants to do something. He needs to achieve something real. That could possibly push Commissioner Gordon over the edge to abandon his belief in law and order and to convince him in fact that sticking to principles sticking to law and order is insane when your real reaction should be to go crazy and just like like evil has been done unto you like, don't you want to do evil? Don't you just want to take it out on the world? And so he wants to he wants to push Commissioner Gordon over the edge in order to prove a point. And Commissioner Gordon faces down that challenge and sticks to his principles. Right. So I think that's an interesting idea. That's a, that the, right. those belong to the themes that like that Alan Moore wants to explore. So now the question is. The horrible thing, in particular, did it have to be that right. horrible thing? Well, and and, and then what does it say that Alan Moore chose that horrible thing? And uh, you know, I, I think that if you take something that we really didn't know about his work at the time, but if you look at a lot of his work over time, there is a fixation with sexual violence against women. Now, I think a
0: huge... Did you ever read Lost Girls ever? I never picked that one up. Oh,
1: that's a a tough one. That was was always always afraid like my kids would find that one. That was
0: where, yeah, I mean, like, you know, he took, like, I think it was Alice in Wonderland and Dorothy and a couple other figures like that, and just, it's kind of supposed to be an erotic comic, and it's just very weird and strange, and factors into all the stuff that you're
1: describing. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's one of those things, though, that I think that when you look at the themes in his work, I think, you know, you would... uh, it's you would agree that I do agree with the thing that he's very concerned about feminist themes and he's making an argument about societies and cultures that are misogynistic and are predatory toward women but he does it a lot and he seems to be very interested in that a lot and there is so much of that in comics anyway produced by people who aren't trying to make any points and yeah so that decision to do that to Barbara Gordon participates in this long history that preceded the Killing Joke, even then, by by the industry in general of how women are used in stories, how women are uh, abused in stories, female characters, and yeah. and, and, and well, so and... it was queasy. But but at the same time, I think that like at the time, it was easy to overlook, and I think it might be easy to forgive now because the other themes in that story are just so strong, and you understand why it's being done in the comic, but. Like, does it have to be like it could have been better if he had Challenged himself to come up with a more creative idea for what that event could have been to at Gordon.
0: The big issue of all is, you know, the Joker's big plan is I'm gonna do something really terrible. I'm gonna win a moral victory against Commissioner Gordon, and it's kind of like, well, no, the terrible thing you did was you just paralyzed Batgirl, (laughs) and and and, you know the 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 strange weight that is placed on Commissioner Gordon making a like winning a moral victory. You do read it now, and you're kind of like, oh, so there's not even gonna be
1: another little little. Moment with yeah. uh, your your paralyzed daughters. It's it's very strange. What was what was interesting about the killing joke then? That is sef- definitely not interesting right now, or at least not anymore. Is that this was at a time I think in the '80s where in all throughout pop culture and in, in comics with Alan Moore and, and in other areas, the sort of like deconstruction of the hero as expressed by just inherently virtuous and just totally good. Um, was a rather new and provocative project, you know. And Alan Moore uh, was certainly at the forefront of that and like like rethinking about like questioning the goodness of these characters. and really, with a lot of other people in the industry at the time, pushing us toward an embrace of antiheroes. Where uh, specifically that like we we can believe in heroes, but we, we can't really believe that they're actually motivated by the good yeah. or virtue, because apparently Batman, we didn't believe that anymore. Batman
0: time. as psychotic unto himself,
1: right. yeah. And um and and this was kind of taking place against the backdrop, of course, of the '80s and sort of re- and a lot of and cocaine and a lot of cocaine, <laughs> a lot of cocaine. That's really my point a lot of cocaine in the Sorry. No, I didn't, just, mean to I didn't But just like the Reagan 80s and the whole like there was a, a, a popular project among kind of like counterculture artists to really kind of like poke at the hypocrisy of of, of moral authority, right? Um, and I, I think of specifically Blue Velvet and the beginning of Blue Velvet and that metaphor for uh, what we present, but what's really underneath. The
0: little insects kind of brewing underneath right.
1: the kind of Norman Rockwell suburbia, yeah. And this was a really sophisticated thought in the 80s in popular art. And today, though, after a 10 years of just you know, anti-hero pop culture, especially on television, um i think i think that's played out you have to be very inventive i think with the anti-hero archetype to earn it and you have to do something interesting with it just to make it look like that it's just not cynical and i think that's just one reason why now the killing joke existing in this form just looks really cynical
0: yeah i think it's changing i think batman's changing i think lego batman is going to do a lot for that i think Woo-hoo! like uh, did you watch it
1: will restore well, not,
0: listen, like I'm not sure about that. I think it'll be delightful. Uh, did you see the Justice League trailer? Like even yeah, I yeah. think, I think. I mean, listen, I don't know what's going to happen with those DC movies and, you know, pow- power to them for trying to pivot away from Batman v Superman.
1: At least in tone, it's a uh, certainly like I
0: think Ben Affleck, I I I think his Batman might really luck out because he got in right at the end of this grimmest and grittiest era of Batman and even like a lot of his interpretation of Batman in the movie felt like he was drifting on the fumes of the Christian Bale totally serious Batman I think that like when that movie comes out and when that kind of the character gets to start chilling out a little bit as we saw in the trailer he's now kind of bantering he's interacting with funny characters like the Flash like you know, I I think that may actually do a lot to just kind of push us away from. And I I Did love you, Christian I, Bale. I want to be very clear. Right, right. I love Christian Bale as Batman. All I'm saying is I, I it, it may actually be really entertaining to see Dark Batman become bantering Batman. And, and I I, like I, I think Ben Affleck will get to ride that wave in a way that no other Batman. I like has ever what quite you're saying there him.
1: about he, he may have lucked into that. We may have lucked into him too. I mean, like he might be the perfect pivot from one modality to another. Yeah, and I and I have high hopes for that. The end of the killing joke the graphic novella when people read it back in the day no one everyone thought that it ends with the joker telling this joke uh, to Batman, that seems to illuminate the nature of their relationship and essentially the no-win struggle that they will be locked in for the rest of their lives. And they and it ends with Batman actually laughing at this joke and then laughing together as it starts to rain and as we hear sirens approaching and we hear their laughter. And when people read this back in the day, everyone just took that completely on face value. Right. But now, like many years later, there is this popular theory on the internet. Which I think that Alan Moore has said, like quite definitively, this was not his intention. But the theory that has been put forward by Grant Morrison and others who who read it saw something different, which was that there is an implication in the final panels that that Batman fulfills the the implication and threat of the beginning of the book, which is that he kills the Joker. We uh, we know that they're both laughing, but there's cues in that in that scene where all of a sudden one of, the, one, one of their laughters drops away and there's only one person laughing. And then we only hear sirens. So who stopped laughing and why? And that has been a proof for, and then there's a silhouette image of Batman laughing, putting his hands on Joker's shoulders, or is it going toward his neck? So this is these proofs for this idea of um, that, that perhaps Joker Uh, Batman kill Joker. My question to you is I love that theory, by the way, I, I, I I, I do. I do. (laughs) Do you think that that's what happens at the end of this movie? Um, at the end of the movie, I Uh, think that they're playing to it even harder in the movie. I think they're playing like that theory obviously existed and was known when they produced this movie. I think that they are intentionally playing to that theory while keeping the ambiguity.
0: Yeah. I think they're playing to the theory. Um, I don't believe the theory. Listen, I think the Joker is still alive, and I think Tony Soprano is still alive. (laughs) So, like, I I understand. I I think it's a cool idea, and I actually think that the notion that the Joker dies actually retroactively makes certain aspects of the story seem less bad only because like then that seems to be like this is the end for these characters and so maybe a certain amount of horrible things happening to everyone is allowed in a way that wouldn't be allowed
1: apocalypse. Yeah. right
0: yeah um but yeah the, the movie but again this is the problem with so the movie. the movie
1: ends the movie ends with again that joke and everything like that you get the shot of 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 the uh of a of Batman putting his hands on his shoulder and the camera pans down to a puddle and you hear laughter and you hear one person's laughter Fade away the Joker stops laughing before Batman ever does and that's the last thing you hear But you don't hear any sirens so that he's Batman does say earlier that the police are on the way But in the final shots they haven't arrived and you don't hear them coming. So here it is like at the end of this movie, I guess I'm spoiling the whole movie. How for dare you? Um, but but yeah, it's just this like, horrible movie no one should watch. Right? Yeah. Which is they're having a private moment. There's nobody around. He has opportunity. He has motive. He has all the things that like would convict him of murder. Like.
0: You know what I think, though? Here's here's the issue. And here again is where, you know, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback with an adaptation of a story that everybody thinks they know everything about. But, like... The Joker, uh, like, we've seen the Joker die in Batman Arkham City, a really, really good Batman story that also happened to be an awesome video game. And we have seen that Joker return from sort of beyond the grave in Batman Arkham Knight. So to me, I'm kind of like, you know, if you're going to kill the Joker, like, you know what would be awesome? Did you ever see Halloween H20, the one where Jamie Lee Curtis came back to to the Halloween franchise? What do you think? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to guess that's a big no. <laughs> well, uh, uh, allow me to spoil Halloween oh, H20 you, Jeff. Dang, I, so, <laughs> I
1: have it on my cue.
0: So that movie, which is actually reasonably entertaining, came out in the sort of like Kevin Williamson teen horror craze. It was it was basically like the Halloween franchise's attempt to cash in on the on the late '90s, you know, slasher, all influenced by the original Halloween, um, craze. And that movie, which is you know largely about Jamie Lee Curtis, she's now uh, you know a few years older than she was in the original. She has a son. She's been dealing with her fear of Michael Myers her whole life. The end of that movie. It's her kind of reaching out, like, like, Michael Myers is sort of trapped in this, like, car wreckage, and he's freaking out, and he's actually kind of, like, seems to be asking her for help, Michael Myers is. Like, he reaches his hand out to her, and she almost reaches out to him, and instead, of the last shot of the movie is her taking an axe and just chopping his head off. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of the movie. And I kind of think that, like, you know, I get maintaining the ambiguity. I think this this movie, I I, I would have upped the Killing Joke movie a little bit if it had just ended with Batman acting actually, like, snapping the Joker's neck. like Which I realize is not, you know, this flies in the face of everything I was just saying about darkness and everything, but have the courage of your convictions, I guess, yeah, is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the message of this podcast. Jeff, really quickly, Mr. Robot, where are we at with this? We're four episodes in. You've written you, you've already written several books about this season. <laughs> we seem to be trapped between multiple realities. I want to know: are, are you enjoying this season? Are you enjoying what's been happening so far?
1: I'm not enjoying it as much as last season. Why is that? For sure. Um, I uh, I think I prefer my Mr. Robot to be very. Uh, I I love the filmmaking. Don't get me wrong. And I and I love the chances that they're taking. I really appreciate it. Um, I do miss. Um, stuff think, happening. Well, stuff <laughs> stuff happening. I think it's it's a little bit poorly paced. Um, basically, the first four episodes are all about just getting Elliot back to a place where he can function in a way that he can actually give the story a plot, you know, um, and just sort of rehabilitation of his mind or getting it in functional shape and the, the, the revival of the hero, if you will. Um, I, I think I miss um, the, the show working in just tighter hour-long 45-minute blocks and being disciplined. I would love to see all the same kind of like filmmaking innovation and daring and boldness, uh, but with a little bit more discipline Poured into kind of like a more forty-five-minute structure.
0: Oh, oh, Sam Esmail is going full. I mean, he's he's tweeted about it like sort of apologetically and yes. like in a very self-aware fashion. He is, he is at that Kurt Sutter season six phase of like we are no longer within the hour-long like like television timeline yeah. here.
1: That, that said, I disagree with this notion that it is quote unquote gone off the rails. And I actually have a lot of grace and um and I'm uh, for Sam. Uh, trying to be different and be bold and push his own artistry and push everyone else's. I mean, it it might might be leading to flawed results and and messy results, but I still find it pretty compelling. Yeah. Um, And I'm and I'm and, and what works works amazingly well to a degree that I. I think that we'll, we'll be remembering the highs of this season more than maybe anything in season one. Yeah, um,
0: I love it. I, I, honestly, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of love, love it all. I, I love like, it as a
1: brilliant mess, as opposed to last season where I loved it as a very controlled. Well, I thing. just,
0: I, I, I just really admire the fact that, like, I, I think a lot of people experience the show in this kind of way where, fundamentally, they want Elliot to be doing what Elliot does. Yes, which is very understandable. I mean, most. most most tv shows are like that like and, and you know when a show spends as a show has done four hours, maybe even longer actually in these four long episodes spends four hours with a character not doing what he does best, it can feel strange, it can feel like a delaying tactic. it can feel like the show doesn't know what kind of show it is yeah. like i'm I'm fully in for this season i I could happily watch watch Elliot uh, talk about Seinfeld with his pal, who may or may not be there at the diner for another five episodes
1: but um do you, do you like this? theory like and I've written a lot about the theory that is very popular out there that all of this is not real. We've talked about this yeah, before. We discussed do, it. Do you like it though? Do you do you want to find out that he's actually in a psychiatric hospital and everyone that he's interacting with is really not who you they know, are presented to be here? I
0: mean, Jeff, half the time I'm not sure that my reality is real. So I actually I'm actually really on the show's wavelength when it starts to mix together different variants of of dimensionality. Um I do think the show is actually playing a little more fair than perhaps we thought after the first two episodes. like I think, I, yeah. I kind of thought that there was going to be a major reveal on the level that you know you were kind of describing this theory of he's in an asylum and maybe none of this is happening. The show seems to be making a pretty coherent case in these last two episodes for the vast majority of stuff is happening and everyone around him is real maybe with the exception of his mom, who knows we still haven't heard very much from her and I, I think you pointed out she's still nameless so who knows what will happen there but I, I, I think the show is playing fair in a lot of ways and you know again I'm I realize that this is this sounds like damning with faint praise. One of my favorite shows of all time is John from Cincinnati, which was a weird show that went nowhere but was made beautifully. And I think that Mr. Robot in the first part of this season has felt that way. I, I'm 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 not sure that's what Sam Esmail is going for, and I understand why a lot of people who were under the impression that it would hit the ground running it has done the opposite of that, and I I understand why. I mean it feels like the show is now making the case to say, hey, stick around and in the back half of the season things will be revealed and we'll dig into those missing three days and we will kind of kick the ball forward. And I'm I'm willing to follow the show on that. But but I, I also, when I say l- it's like John from Cincinnati, I understand why people may turn and jump out a
1: window. <laughs> right. It, it does feel a little bit after watching the first three episodes that when, when he was brainstorming the season and he was thinking about whatever situation he was going to be putting Elliot in and the conflict that he was having with Mr. Robot. All of these thematic possibilities of how it could be a metaphor for this or metaphor for that came to mind and he's, he decided to just write to the themes and write to the metaphors until he could exhaust himself of that. And then it's like, okay, now let's tell a story. Right, yes, yes. And I don't know if that's the uh, the greatest strategy moving forward the show, unless you can kind of like tighten everything up and make each episode a more kind of like tightly focused yeah. thematic statement. I'm on
0: board. Next to next to Big Brother and, and Real Housewives of New York City, it's the best thing on television right now, um, as far as I'm concerned. But I also haven't watched too much TV lately. Jeff, <laughs> uh, next week we'll talk a little bit about Mr. Robot. Not sure what else yet.
1: We'll, we'll figure. Something
0: Maybe we'll out. talk more about Lego Batman. Uh, he's been Jeff Jensen. I've been Darren Franich. Thanks for listening, everybody.